I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Marcus Granderson, author, podcaster, and speaker. His new book is Timestamp, Musings of an Introverted Black Boy. Marcus Granderson's story is probably not like yours. He's a black boy from the Midwest. He's never been kissed. He's desperately in love with two women, Aretha and Whitney. He struggles with a mild form of social anxiety. He's been called an Oreo. He's been stopped by the police while walking home. He's the descendant of slaves and a Harvard graduate. Though your stories may not be the same, the universal themes explored in his poignant and personal literary collection, Love, Identity, Hope, Social Justice, and Coming of Age, bond us together. When he's not writing books or working as a speechwriter at West Wing Writers, he can be found cooking, devouring new music, or producing his seasonal short-form podcast series, Musings of an Introverted Black Boy. Welcome to the show, Marcus. Nice to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be talking with you. Okay, so introverted black boy you call yourself, and yes. I'm assuming that uh, introverted for you means what, writing a book and graduating cum laude from Harvard? That's what you do when you're introverted? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, introverted is a very it's a very interesting term, and I think a lot of people throw out the terms are introvert and extrovert, extrovert, and a lot of people associate that with either you're really shy or you're outgoing. But the way that I've always conceived of my introversion is just kind of like where you get your energy from. So I think there's some people who, like when they're in, they're in social settings, they get a lot of their energy from like the people around them. And so they're constantly trying to go to parties and be around other people. And they always like have to have people around them. And for me as an introvert, it's kind of like social interactions can be a bit draining for me. So there are obviously love people, love talking to people. But then there's times where I have to like retreat and kind of, you know, take time to recharge and reflect. And that's actually kind of, I think, what makes this book, made this book possible is because I spent a lot of time in that recharging time thinking and reflecting and as an introvert also living inside of my head, did a lot of overthinking, which allowed me to, you know, have a lot of food for thought that ended up making into this book. But okay, Marcus, your the title of the book, and I'm going to go back to that because timestamp yes. musings of an introverted black boy. What if you said musings yes. of an introverted white boy? Would would it, there be a difference? There, I think there would be a difference simply because the book um, talks about my coming of age experience in many different ways, and but also my racial coming of age experience and what it meant to come of age black in America, and how throughout the majority of the book is written over my time in college. And college is really when I first really came into my racial identity. And so there are, there are various pieces throughout the book that kind of explore that that coming-of-age experience. And so it is very tied in some ways to my... The book is very tied in many ways to my, my black identity. Well, let's talk about that because you really just graduated, yeah. 2018. Um, and so before college, because you said college is really when you came into that experience uh, as a young yeah. black man. Let's go back with your parents and, and, and the beginning. I think you what you grew up in a, a, a middle class, middle, upper middle class. Let's talk about the demographics, your background. Yes, definitely. So it was like a middle class um, family, upper middle class family um probably between the border between middle and upper middle class. And the community that I grew up in was a suburb of Detroit, and it was a primarily white suburb. And so the school that I went to both for um, elementary, middle, and high school was predominantly white. Uh, the majority of people I went to school with and had classes with were white. And so um, I had a very complicated or 
I would almost say disjointed relationship to my blackness, where um, there were a lot of people, and many of these people were not black, who thought that because I like grew up in the background that I did, or because um, I was taking a lot like more um, like honors classes because of um, the various opportunities that had been presented to me, and so some people thought that those opportunities or those classes that I took, or the grades that I received kind of made me less than black because they had this really restrictive understanding of what blackness is and could be. And because I didn't necessarily fit into that stereotypical box, um, they kind of questioned my black identity at times. And I realized looking back on that, like coming to college, like that was, that wasn't my, that wasn't something that was wrong with me. It's not that my blackness was somehow compromised. That was because other people did not understand that blackness is not a monolith and there's not one way to be black. There are, there are diverse ways to be black. And just because someone may not fit into your conception of what blackness is doesn't mean that they're not black. And so when I came to college, I really owned that, that facet on that identity. And that's when I was really able to come of age racially um, in my own life. Well, let's talk about your parents, because obviously they're a big factor. Yeah. yeah, so your relationship with your parents and their relationship to what you've just told us. Uh, they, I mean, I'm assuming that you talked, I don't know what, well, let's talk about what did they did? What were their, in terms of working yeah. profession? Yeah. Yeah, so my parents were really great. And obviously, like, I, it's interesting dichotomy because I grew up, very much aware of being black and knowing that I was African-American, that my skin color was different than the vast majority of people I went to school with. And all the cultural aspects of being black were in my home and around me. So it was like, it was in some ways I knew, in other ways I didn't know. And so it was kind of a, a, a back and forth thing between the two. Um, but my parents were very good and very supportive and they were always encouraging me and pushing me to do my best and to try the hardest that I could. And they didn't, we didn't necessarily have a lot of conversations about um, the effects that I felt that that was having on how people were perceiving my race. Um, because I think in part, because it's something that should not have happened. I don't think any parent um, believes or wants to believe that if they push their child to do their best and to try their hardest, that that's going to come at the expense of parts of who they are. Um, and it shouldn't have. And so um, that wasn't a conversation I necessarily had with my parents growing up. Um, it was kind of like a personal journey that I went through, a personal internal journey um, that I'm now beginning to talk about. And now that I've, I've, I talk about it in the book and they've read the book, so now that they're, they're aware of that something, they're aware that that's something that I dealt with. But growing up, it wasn't necessarily a big topic of conversation. Do you think the fact that we had... A- well, I, in my book, a great president, Barack Obama, and that's the era mm-hmm. that you grew up in. So that must have had an impact yeah. on you as well, I would assume, right? Yeah. And I think the difference between my high school experience, and my college experience is that even though I think people realized early within the President Obama's presidency that we were not in a post, the post-racial society that many wanted us to believe that we were in after his election. But I do think that there was in some ways this general sense that maybe progress was tangible progress was actually happening and that we were getting better. But then towards the later half of his presidency into, uh, I would, I'm thinking around 2014 through 2015, when the Black Lives Matter movement became kind of this national movement inspired in part by the death of Trayvon Martin, which happened in 2012, actually, um, but also the police shooting of Michael Brown or Eric Gardner or Tamir Rice. Um, there were 
various things that happened that kind of showed America or demonstrated to America that all this progress we thought we had made because we had elected the first African-American president was actually not what we thought it was. And because that was happening as I was going to college and also I was, for the first time, I was surrounded by more um, African-Americans, more black people than I really had ever been before in a school context. Um, even though Harvard is not as diverse as it should be, it is 14% black, and I was able to find communities of black people who were really rooted in their identity and were really um, passionate about championing black issues and black culture and black history, and that also inspired me to want to learn more about it and stay more co- and get more connected to my black identity. But that was happening while the nation was also going through all these traumatic, tumultuous things, and so it was kind of like a confluence of events that led to my racial coming-of-age experience. And I do want to acknowledge that that is in some ways a form of privilege that I have growing up in an upper-middle-class suburb um, and having the opportunity to go to grow up in a place where I didn't necessarily experience more explicit forms of racism. Obviously, there were racism exists everywhere in this country. Um, it's it's something that we have to contend with no matter where we go or where we grew up. But I did not experience the really explicit forms of racism that would have, I think, ushered me into my uh, racial coming-of-age experience a lot quicker had I experienced those things. And so I do want to acknowledge that there was a level of privilege that I had and that it wasn't until college that I truly reckoned with what it meant to be black in America. Um, but that's that's what ended up happening. Do you think, Marcus, I mean, given the climate today, the political climate today, too, things have, uh, you know, I mean, have the, the, the divisiveness, the divisiveness, you know, all of what's happening now, does that, uh, I mean, that certainly must impact you as a young African-American um, Harvard graduate. <laughs> um, yeah, what, because... The, 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 your environment, our environment, the cultural environment is completely changed. So, um, how has that been for you? Yeah, it's been, obviously, it's challenging, but I think one of the things that I learned as I, throughout college, that I really came, became aware of is that the, all of the divisiveness, divisiveness that's happening right now is really a symptom of a larger issue that people look at our current, the current president, people look at our current climate, and there are some people who want to believe that this is not, that this is new, that this is not who America is, that this came out of left field, and that this, that some, that once we get rid of the current president, the president we have, then everything will go back to normal. But the harsh reality is that America has always had these issues. Obviously, this climate has maybe brought them to the surface in a more stark way than it has in maybe the last 20 or so years. But America has always dealt with issues of race from the very beginning, before it even was called America or the United States of America. Racism was an issue because the first, you know, African slaves stepped foot on on North America soil long before um, we ever had a constitution, long before there was a Declaration of Independence. So these are enduring struggles that we have always dealt with already have already tried to deal with and have failed at and we have always dealt with um and so for me well i guess what's the most disheartening thing is that we're still in this place after over 400 years of enslavement over 400 years of trying to 
get full freedom and full equality for not only black people, but for people of all marginalized identities, that we're still in this place where there are people, particularly children, and that's something that concerns me, that there are children still growing up in a world that does that where they're not fully accepted and loved because of their skin color or because of their identity. And that's what breaks my heart most when I look out at the landscape that we currently find ourselves living in. Well, to add to that, I'm thinking about uh, what about women? We didn't get the right to vote until what, 1923 or thereabouts. Yeah. So, um, yeah. and, and that too is, you know, the, uh, uh, I guess the discrimination against women has been bubbling underneath. All of this stuff is still there, as you say. I mean, it's all, and, you know, now it comes to the surface, but it hasn't gone away. It's still there. So yeah. what do you see for yourself in terms of helping to mitigate all of this? I mean, because your whole future is ahead of you, and you have the tools yeah. to, to be able to do something, to be a, a, to be a leader. I mean, you've already started. You're writing books. You're doing podcasts. But uh, what's yeah. the, you know, yeah. Yes, I guess I see one of my, one of the things that I really became passionate about that I didn't realize I was going to come, become passionate about during just the writing process or the editing process of this book is like how much I care about allowing all children, but particularly black children to have full coming of age experiences. There are so many statistics and studies that show that black children in particular are not seen as innocent or as vulnerable as their white counterparts are. There's a study that I recently found that shows that in terms of the school setting, that black girls are suspended at nearly six times the rate of their white counterparts, and yet the data shows that they don't commit acts of misconduct at nearly any at any higher of a rate than white girls do. And also similarly, there's another study that showed that black boys are not seen as innocent as white boys are, that there are certain things that, you know, society normally attaches to children, like innocence, that obviously children, you know, make mistakes, but we assume that they're essentially by nature innocent because they're children. But that air of innocence is oftentimes given to white children and not to black children. And that in many ways robs them of having the full, robust coming-of-age experiences that they deserve. Because if you think about what racism and discrimination does to children, is that it it corrupts the beauty of their childhood. It, in many ways, robs them of their imaginations. It, it dims down what they think they can do and be because they know that they may experience setbacks because of the color of their skin or whatever their identity may be. And so I guess I see, at least now through writing this book and thinking about the books that I'm going to write in the future and really thinking about like young adult audiences is if I can do anything to help black children and then I will extend that after black children, all children with marginalized identities have full robust coming of age experiences where they are allowed to come of age fully and freely and liberated and they can be who they are and they can do what they want to do without any like shackles or borders or boundaries placed on them. I think that's what I can, I see as my contribution in some ways to this moment is or like i would want my contribution to this moment to be well you started i guess with this uh, with a you've written or you're in the process of writing a young adult novel the lost soul yes. of sadie street can you talk about it i know it's yes. not finished yep 
Yes, it's it's very much still in the process of being written, but it is titled The Lost Soul of Sadie Street, and it follows an 18-year-old black kid who grows, who, and it's semi-autobiographical in some ways, and, you know, fiction, purely fiction in other ways, but he grew up in a suburb of Detroit, and that book basically follows his journey of coming of age, um, particularly in the last year of his high school experience. And um, the book kind of centers around the deep relationship that he has with his maternal grandmother, who grew up in, um, who grew up and both lives in Detroit on, in a house on Sadie Street, which is just a fictional street um, in Detroit. Um, and it, the book centers around that relationship because um, his grandmother is the one who introduced him to food and music rooted in the African-American experience. And so when it comes to food, that's soul food. And when it comes to music, that's the music traditions that basically built um, modern African-American music, but just modern American music, where you're looking, whether you're looking at Negro spirituals or gospel or jazz or blues or soul or funk, like these classical African-American music genres, his grandmother introduced them to him. And so the book kind of follows his, the development of his love for those two forms of art, both the food and the music. And so it kind of follows his journey through the, his last year of high school as he's trying to figure out what he wants to do with his life. And in the very beginning of the novel, um, and I don't think this is too much of a spoil alert because it happens on the first page, um, his grandmother passes away. And so he's dealing with the loss of that. And because she was the one who kind of anchored him in this in these musical, in this, that musical and that food tradition, which is rooted in African American history, that that death kind of sends him on this journey to try and figure out what is what is his relationship to these music forms and these art forms um, apart from his grandmother. And so that's what the book is talking about. And I do hope that through that book, while by showcasing a young black boy who loves to cook, that maybe that shows um, other black children who don't see representations of themselves in the food culture and the food um, entertainment space that we currently have, then maybe it will give them the opportunity to feel seen and to feel validated and to know that, yes, there are black children who do love to cook and there are black boys who do love to cook and that it's a, and that is something that you can do and be proud of doing. And so I do hope that the book does help black children see themselves represented in it. And also just all children, all, all children regardless of who they are, I hope it shows them um, how how much black children when they come of age are just like all other children of all other races and identities. And this is, I, I mentioned, or is a young adult novel, but as I understand it, adults are reading young adult novel, novels. They become, yes. Isn't that true? It's, yes. Yeah. So that you're, yeah, you're on, I believe, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that is so true. I believe, I don't know if this is the most accurate one, but something about something around like 50% of young adult novels are purchased actually by adults, um, by adult readers. Obviously, most young adult books are purchased by adults for children, but like there are, there's a large subset of people who are adults who just purchase them for themselves because there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of diverse storytelling being told in the young adult space. There's a lot of movements. There's a lot of movements, I think, in general to have more diverse storytelling, whether it's in the publishing industry, whether it's in Hollywood, whether it's in music, all different industries. But I think there's especially something happening with the young adult realm where there are a lot of diverse, really interesting, fascinating stories being told. And I think readers are recognizing that and are being drawn to it. 
They also, though, on the other side of it, we, we talk about well, people aren't reading as much. I don't know what the yes. statistics are, and they're you know they're online and they they don't read a book. They they is is that true? Or I, I mean, is or is that not true? Is that I mean, you may have, yeah yeah. There is. I think there is a lot of anxiety or concerns. Probably, maybe. I'm not going to say maybe the late 2000s, early 2010s, where people were really concerned about this idea of like, oh, people aren't reading as much, or now everyone's reading ebooks, and so print books are not going to do as well. But actually, what from what I've seen, there's actually a resurgence of people wanting to read physical books, like at this moment. Like there's studies that are showing that independent bookstores, even though like major bookstores are really struggling because of online retailers like Amazon, what you're finding is that independent bookstores are actually growing and thriving. And that there is a movement now for people of people who want to buy physical books and to read. And so I think Obviously, there are so many things that are vying for people's attention nowadays. Before, you know, people read books because there's not much else you could do for entertainment. Like, you could watch TV, but there would be one TV in the house. You could listen to the radio, but you would have to be in a car to do that, or you would have to be um, in in the house by the radio player in order to listen to the radio. But now you have the Internet, and you have different things you can do on your phone. And so there's obviously more people, there's more things and more people vying for other people's attention. But I do think there is... A move. I don't even know if I want to call it a movement, but I think there is a resurgence of interest in reading now. And I think um, that's, I, as someone who is an author and someone who does, you know, want to see people reading, um, I think that's a promising and encouraging sign that even though technology is happening, that that's not impeding people from still, you know, reading and finding joy in it. Last question, I think, or it may be my last question, I'm not sure, depending how I'll how you answer it, but I had said that uh, yeah. you're a speechwriter, right? So you're a speechwriter at West Wing yeah. Writers. What is West Wing Writers? What yeah. do you do? Yeah. Yes. So it's a communicate. It's a speechwriting and communication strategy firm, and the official title is speechwriter. But I guess the more accurate represent, re- representative term for it is more like a communication strategist. So we do obviously help write speeches, but we also. Um, can help people and collaborate on book projects or corporate communication strategies. Basically, we're, we're what Western Writers is is basically a communicative partner. If there is something that you that, that a company or a brand or a celebrity or anyone wants to say and they need help saying that thing in whatever form it may be, whether it's print, digital, audio, um, we're really there to assist and to help them communicate their message in the most bold, effective, and beautiful way possible. Because at the end of the day, we are a group of writers, and so we do enjoy um, crafting beautiful prose. Um, So that's kind of what West Wing Writers does in a general sense. West Wing Writers. So if you go to westwingwriters.com, is that what we do? If we we want to hire you? Yes, and you can see more information about what all the different projects that we that we take on, and then also there's uh, information about the people on the teams. So you can see all the amazing people that work at the firm, and all and everyone comes from different backgrounds. There's people who worked in the White House. There are people who who are also authors or former teachers or foreign policy advisors who worked in the State Department. It's just a really eclectic yet beautiful collection of writers that exist there. That's a great idea. There are a lot of, uh, I've noticed anyway, there are a, a lot of companies that do that, but when you actually get down to looking at what they write or how they write or even hiring them, they don't always do such a great job, to be honest. So that's why I'm asking you about West mm-hmm. Wing writers. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, West Wing writers, yeah. definitely. I, 
I'm, and I obviously working there, I'm, I've made sound biased, but West Riders, it's just, I've never been surrounded by a more talented group of writers in my entire life. Uh, they constantly push me to be a better writer myself. So I, I can, I sing their highest praises, um, in both a bias because I work there, but also non-biased ways. I would even if I didn't work there. What, okay, where any, the website for, that's one website, website, we can go to the westwingwriters.com, but uh, for your book, Timestamp, yeah. um, timestamp.com yeah so actually you can go to my personal website which is just www.marcusgranderson.com um, you can also follow me on all the social media platforms I'm on Instagram just at Marcus Granderson I'm on um, Twitter at MK underscore Granderson and I'm also on Facebook at Marcus Granderson so either through the personal website or through any of my social medias you can stay connected and learn more information about the podcast about the book about the second book, which is still being written and is still in the process of being um, developed, but you can learn all about that at any of those those websites. Well, Marcus, it was a, a pleasure or a treat talking to you, I have to say. Um, just keep on doing what you're doing, obviously, and I'll look for the next book. Uh, you said spring 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, the book we've been talking about today, Timestamp, Musings of an Introverted Black Boy, Marcus Granderson. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 